when we speak in England, we always have to say very little but get people used to our voices because in England, people, first of all, listen to the accent uh, and they don't hear anything that's said until we've got that one settled. Alan and I have a funny way of interrupting each other while we speak. Yes, we have called ourselves the Siamese mouth. <laughs> we do speak together. We prepare together. This grows out of many conversations. It grows out of our study of the Bible as what we call a small hermeneutical community of two. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here, and it's a joy to be introduced by Arthur, who has influenced us in innumerable ways, who's been a colleague and uh, a co-worker. Arthur and Eleanor are co-editors of Take Our Moments and Our Days, an Anabaptist prayer book. I don't know if, if any of you looked at it. Have any of you seen it? Yeah. We use it every day. It's in the grand daily office tradition, but it brings a distinctive Anabaptist flavor to it, rooted especially, I think, in the voice of Jesus, rooted very much in a sense of common gathering around the word to which there is an opportunity for response, and rooted then in the possibility of praying specifically and audibly about concerns that those of us who come to the daily office bring. And so we rejoice to see it spreading in its use, its review by Anglicans appreciatively, and uh, Arthur and Eleanor were at the heart of that. And so we're grateful also for the hospitality that we have been shown. Lorna is a great, a great host, and uh, we've enjoyed being in their home, but also just the conversations we've had here and uh, a sense of common faith and common passion, commitment to our Lord, and uh, being on a common journey. So through these conversations, we're learning together. And our gratitude to Tyndale for having us. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Now, does everybody have a handouts here? What we're going to be There's doing here that this morning is we're going to be starting by looking at our setting. And uh, we're reflecting that of course, the gospel is contextual, and it addresses all of us in situations in which we are called to be resident aliens. <laughs> We're called to be people who are authentically present in a society, but of people who are distinctive in this society. And so the question that we will want to see you people thinking about is what this means in Canada. How to be resident aliens. Now, many of us here are, in fact, living in a culture other than what we were born into, living in England for many years, we have a sense of what that's like, to belong and yet somehow to be uh, different, to be alien, to be resident, but also uh, alien to this culture in which we live. We ourselves have been deeply shaped by our England years. We lived there for 30 years. And we then came back to the U.S. where we have retired somewhat actively. <laughs> and we are constantly thinking about what is the way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts people, impacts our neighbors, impacts our culture. We're going to show you a few pictures that indicate that we are no longer in a Christendom society. So worship and mission, as our book puts it, worship and mission after Christendom. We know what Christendom is because we've seen it, and we also know what it is to see Christendom disappear. So just a few pictures. 
England is a country that um, has been dominated architecturally by the church. So there are cities in which the spires of the churches are the highest buildings. This is Lincoln. And this is Whitchurch Canonicorum. It's a small village in Dorset. And once again, the church tower dominates. And in Whitchurch, everybody would hear the bell. People would be called to worship on Sunday morning. And worship would be the event that unites the entire society, the citizens and the church members being the same people. So visually and audibly, the church dominated. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a more recent picture. And you know, the tallest building generally indicates what society worships most. And this is a bank. But it has the shadow of a church on it. The shadow of a church upon it. Church spires used to be the tallest in London, in the city of London, but now it's the banks. And churches are these days being put to other use. This is St. Werburgh's, Bristol, that has come to be a climbing center. So if you want to climb up, the, you ever feel like climbing the walls? <laughs> you can do it here. <laughs> you can do it at St. Werburgh's. <laughs> and what excites the passions of people? Is it the Corpus Christi procession? Well, more likely, it's the World Cup. And I like that one. That was on a pub. I can't see. That. In our neighborhood. In our neighborhood, where we lived in Oxford, this was the mosque that was just down the street from us. So now it's not just churches. It's, it's uh, mosques and places of worship of uh, many cultures and other religions. And an increasingly articulate atheist expression in the UK. In present in Canada? I don't know. Present in the US, there are vigorous debates that go on. But in the UK, they are renting sides of buses. And they look like that. And the query then is, how do we as Christians worship? How do we witness in this kind of a society? We are in what has been called post-Christendom. And our friend Stuart Murray has given us some categories with which to think about post-Christendom. And so let's look at the handout. So the top says post-Christendom. If Christendom is a society in which everyone seeks to glorify Christ, to live under the lordship of Christ, and if at times that is brought about by compulsion and inducement, post-Christendom is a culture that emerges as the Christian faith loses coherence. Within this society that has been definitively shaped by the Christian story. And as the institutions that have been developed to express Christian convictions decline in influence. And so it is a society that has had the steeple as the tallest building that no longer does, either intellectually or culturally. And the church is casting a shadow on the bank. So that's, that's the movement that we're thinking about here. And so there are transitions that are taking place that we have observed. We have observed in England. We have observed even in the United States. And that is that the church is moving from the center of society to its margins. It's moving from being the majority to minority, no longer the overwhelming majority. 
It's moving in which play, Christians knew that they belonged, in which they were settlers, to a situation in which they are sojourners. They are on a journey, a journey into diaspora. Moving from privilege to plurality. In Christendom, Christians enjoyed many privileges. Not least, Sunday is a day when the churches could meet without competition. The bishops uh, sit in the, in the House of Lords, and it, it has changed, moving now to one community among many. From control to witness, we could say what would happen. We, could, we Christians could legislate, and now we need to articulate a vision that draws. We need to attract instead of compel. So instead of needing to maintain this, the uh, supposedly status quo, moving from maintenance to mission within a contested environment. And finally, from, yeah, from institution to movement. We no longer operate primarily in institutional mode. We operate in a mode in which we are among people. We are among them as equals. We are in a situation of liminality in which we are constantly trying to find a place in which we can speak and embody the good news of Jesus Christ. So here we're using England as a kind of case study of what it looks like visually, but also in these uh, areas of what that movement is of uh, power and of uh, how we live within the society as Christians. It's our perspective that Christendom remains a temptation for Christians, certainly in the United States, probably here. But Christendom is something that comes about in the fourth century when there is an imposition of, first of all, an offering of advantage and then an imposition of control and an imposition of compulsion mm -hmm. upon Christians. When we think of the temptations that Jesus suffered and, and um, this temptation to power, to control, was something that he faced. And, you know, people say, well, Jesus was able to overcome the temptations, but the church hasn't not been as successful in doing that. So this, this question of power and control is at the heart of the matter. Now, the Christendom understandings have been taken by Western missionaries around the world, and so this is shared by many people in many places. So what and we're saying is that even though your country may not be a Western country, there are ways in which you have been influenced and affected by this movement within Europe. And ways in which you may still think, if only we had a Christian emperor, he could make people do it. Mm -hmm. uh, in Japan, Christians were praying for the crown prince who had married a Catholic, who might convert him, who would convert the, the emperor, who would then offer advantage, offer potentially compulsion so in Japan. When we were talking to Japanese Christians about this idea, then of course we could tell the story of Constantine and what happened in the fourth century in Europe when the emperor was converted. It's not such a simple equation as, as it seemed. It was a good conversation. So how in post-Christendom do we proceed? We proceed as people who are committed to the mission of God, which we're going to unpack with you, who believe in Jesus' great commission and Jesus' great commandment, and who pray with Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Well, it seems a very big task. It seems difficult. How do we navigate 
And so the question is, how do we proceed? And uh, Jesus' words, first of all, don't worry. Don't worry, little flock, for the Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. God is present in post-Christendom. God is present in our societies and will will lead lead us. He is the one who is bringing in the kingdom. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is in our midst. In the and Holy the Holy Spirit is at work, relentless, relentlessly creative. Yes, right. So we proceed with, with confidence and expectation in that God is ahead of us in the task. Now, as we look at worship and mission, we find a couple of approaches that seem to be us to be typical. The first of these we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but it's going to underline, underlie what we say. And this approach to worship and mission is to make worship a means of accomplishing mission. It's a kind of way of making worship an instrument. If we can just tinker with our worship and, and, and make it more attractive, then people will be drawn into faith in Christ. That, that is the idea underlying a lot of... Um, efforts that we see. If we can find what the appropriate cultural form is for worship, and it will depend on the group, if it's the appropriate kind of rock music, if it's the appropriate kind of soft, entertaining music, if it's Gregorian chant, mm -hmm. depending who they mm -hmm. are, choose the medium, and the worship will be then mm -hmm. the instrument of God's mm -hmm. worship. And this is a serious, I mean, this is good because it takes enculturation seriously. It is important that we speak and we sing and we worship in the voice of, of the people in which, with whom, whom we live. But we've chosen another way of approaching this, and that is to engage in worship that is not primarily instrumental. The idea isn't that we go to worship in order that we can do certain things. But rather, worship is our offering of praise and glory to God. Worship is God-directed rather than human-directed rather than project-directed. It's directed towards God. And what we've observed is that when we glorify the God of the Bible, the God of the great story, the God of the meta-narrative, when we worship God, we are changed. And God forms us to be participants in God's mission. We are changed by our encounter with God in worship. Mm -hmm. And so what worship does is not reaches the outsiders, worship may change us. And as worship changes us, we then may be instruments of God's mission in the world and function in such a way that instead of our worship being attractive, we, we become attractive as we draw people into relationship with Christ. So that's our thesis, really. That, In a nutshell, that's where we're starting and that's where we're going to end. We worship to glorify God, and in our worship, God changes us and draws us into God's own mission, God's own heart of love for the world. And that's how worship and mission are connected. They flow into each other. They're integrally related. And so we are living in the shadow of Christendom. Christendom has given us beautiful things. We're going into the diaspora, and some of the things of Christendom are going to be things that we will take with us. We have a Catholic friend who talks about the journey into diaspora and says, you know, Christendom offers us things can, that can be either baggage or provisions. <laughs> they can either feed us or they can weigh us down. And so we're not rejecting 
1,500 years of Christian history. We're saying, let's look at it critically. Let's choose from it that which feeds us, that which nourishes us. And let's leave behind that which clutters us mm -hmm. and weighs us down. So in a way, we're in a chaotic time, and it isn't clear what the journey, what the way forward is. But it is an exciting time, and we know that the Spirit is ahead of us and that God is leading us into the worship and into the mission that God has. And so we want to restate a kind of thesis that we're offering to us to you this morning. And that is that worship and mission are both important and that they are synergistic. Now that word means that each thing in itself, worship and mission, is good and strong. But when those are brought together into that, into that interplay, there is synergy. That means that something more than two results. We are drawn into the heart of God. That is what we are saying is going to happen. And so worship glorifies God. That's what it's for. It tells God's story. It praises and thanks God. And then God uses it to form believers who will take part in what God cares about, who will be involved in what God is doing, and who as a result will then attract mm -hmm. others to be involved in the same project. Mm -hmm. So we're saying that missional behavior is only possible as it is rooted in worship. And we can only truly worship as we are involved in God's mission. These things belong together. All right. That's our thesis. It's like breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in and breathing out. <laughs> well, let's look at worship. Uh, you know, the Bible gives us um, a lot of clues. A number of words are very important in Scripture in uh, defining worship. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual latria, your spiritual worship. This is one biblical word, latria, which has to do with formal religious acts and especially with sacrifice. And this leads, then, to not being conformed to the world, but instead being transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so encounter with God in which there is formal religious acts that lead to sacrifice of ourselves, which lead then to us being involved as resident aliens mm -hmm. in the world. So that's an important word. And it's one that has been used most widely. Yes. Within Christian tradition, Augustine, the second Constantinople con uh, council. council, both have said Latria is central to worship. This is fundamental. So that's Romans 12. Then if we look in Acts, uh, here's an example, 13, Acts 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So them. this word is the liturgia. This is the work of the people word, which is often uh, drawn on in, um, in these days. Drawn by the liturgical traditions, obviously. Mm -hmm. Drawn by people who are involved in Christian social action. It also is central, and it has often to do in our understanding with worship that is somehow formal, worship that is ordered. And let's think of then Paul and Barnabas and the rest engaging and saying the Psalms together. Yeah. And while they're saying the Psalms together, the Spirit speaks to them and says, send them out. You know, I mean, so here... Liturgy is missional, as we find it here. A third word. We look now in 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We have, it. we have it at verse 25. 
after the secrets of the unbeliever's heart are disclosed, that person will bow down before God and worship him. Here's the word proskinesis. It has to do with the affective, the emotional, the bodily expression of worship Mm -hmm. in which people bow down and kiss. You know, here is something that draws on the inner wells of affection. the whole body. So there's a multivalent richness in biblical words and biblical understandings of worship that we draw on. That's the foundation that we lay. And so we have various traditions, the liturgical traditions, the Pentecostal traditions that emphasize proskinesis, the Latria traditions that I often think of Presbyterianism as a sample of this kind of thing. They're all right. And we need them all. We need to balance them and get them interpenetrating each other. And as we look at our languages, we find that various languages have chosen interesting words for worship. We were talking to someone who said, I think he was Javanese, was he? He said, um, yeah, our word for worship is a combination of two words, adore and obey. Adore, obey, worship. That's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. So the Javanese, every time they use the word worship, that's what's in their mind. We could go through a number of languages. It's very interesting. You might want to do this yourselves. Gottesdienst. We won't talk about that, but that would be another serving God. Uh But let's look at English. We have a very good word in English. Um, It's called worship. Worship. (laughs) And it comes from old an old English combination of, of two ideas, too. Worthship, worthship. Ascribing worth. Every human's life is an embodied argument about what we think is worth doing. What we think is worth doing, embodied, indicates what we worship. Now I want to tell you a story. We were in Chicago. We went to the Art Institute, which is a great gallery. It has a stunning uh, collection of Impressionist works. It has a few Rembrandts, you know, it has Asian art. And uh, we went there with our grandson, 15 years old. And he loved it. He enjoyed it. We went out the front door and we started walking up Michigan Avenue. We went up along the Golden Mile. And we were heading towards a destination towards which a number of people seemed to be going. The pace was quickening. The stride was lengthening. (laughs) People were moving towards this. And we got up there and we entered the Apple store. The Temple of Apple. The Temple of Apple. And we went in there, and what we found was, you know, there was a, a dominant uh, logo, a dominant... Uh, the, the apple with the bite out of it. Yes. <laughs> the apple with the bite out of it. It's very appropriate. <laughs> right. And what also was there was side chapels around the edge in which various products were being... Uh, looked at with great intensity. Demonstrated, enjoyed. At the back, there was catechesis going on in which people were being taught how to use new programs and they were being invited to (laughs) pay the cost necessary. Yeah, refreshments, yes. It It just struck me, hey, we've come to church. (laughs) You know, we've come to an especially effective church. So what do we ascribe worth Yeah, what are our preoccupations? Where do we put our money, our time, our passions? Mm -hmm. That is what we worship. What do we ascribe worth to? So our word worship 
<clears throat> is very helpful. And so we believe that we are called to discover that which was more exciting than Steve Jobs, that which is more engaging than anything you can buy in that store, and something that can transform our world more <clears throat> than technology. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the narrative of God, which culminates in the new creation of which Jesus is the one who detonates it all, who sets it off, who brings it into power in such a way that it impacts our lives and can change our world. Well, that sounds great, Alan, but <clears throat> can't I also enjoy my Apple computers? I mean, can't I do both? May I, I ask you, do you have an Apple? I do, actually. <laughs> I have two. Now, while all eyes are shut, we will ask all who have Apple computers to raise their hands. <laughs> no, but I mean, can't we do both? Why? Okay. We can. The query is, but who is Lord? Je yeah, what did Jesus say about that? I guess Tell it just me. occurs to me. Well, he said you can't really serve two masters. You can't have two lords. Yeah, he knew about it. Arthur's new book, Living in Focus. <clears throat> Living into Focus. Living into Focus is going to help us think about this. Coming out it's in January. It's out in January. Yes. <laughs> We're talking about where we, where we spend our time, where we have lodged our passions, mm -hmm. and what is shaping us. Mm -hmm. and, and Arthur's work is really going to help us to deal with that as far as technology is concerned, how we're shaped. Now, we're claiming that it is the story that we tell that ultimately shapes our identity. And we have a handout, the other side of what we just saw, which indicates this narrative in very brief form. What time do we finish? Quarter past. It mm -hmm. is something that was offered to us by Tom Wright. A, ver a variety of people have used it in various settings, but it's a five-act drama. Those of us who have studied drama in school or who continue to get yeah, Shakespeare, whatever, yeah. Know about that. Yeah. And it is an, it goes from act one to curtains. So act one is the story of creation, that we have it in the Bible. Act two, the story of the fall. The crisis comes. Act three, God with Israel across the centuries. Act four, Jesus, life and teaching, passion, death and resurrection. And then Act 5, beginning at Pentecost and going on in various scenes. Scene 1, the New Testament church. And scene 2, then, the history of the church across the centuries, include our own denominations, our congregations, and the church's missional expansion into all nations. And then scene 4, which is the future history. So we're living towards the future of the drama. And then the final things, Christ's coming, judgment, cosmic reconciliation, and the banquet. We're heading towards the banquet. We're heading towards that meal to which people will come from every tribe and nation to sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're dealing to moving towards creation healed. That's where the whole story is coming. But how about scene three? Oh, that's blank. We, we forget to put something in there. It's blank. That's where we engage in improv. That's our scene. That's our scene, which we play. We are given freedom to play our part, but in light of what has gone before. And in light of what we anticipate. Mm -hmm. 
we live the moment in light of what we've been shaped by, which is the story that we tell that gives us our identity, and in light of the hope that we have in Christ that is given us by the Bible and given, that is in a way telegraphed, or that's not a good way to put it, that is somehow anticipated for us in ways that we've seen that give us hope that that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we don't, make, we don't do that scene by just keeping our eyes down or, or going with our passions or with our um, particular hobbies and things. It's not just our story, but it's our story within that context that we uh, are affirming. Where is history going, Paul and Colossians? <clears throat> In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and throughout him... God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, earth, or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through the blood of Christ's cross, God is making peace. God is reconciling all things. We're moving, history is moving, he says, towards reconciliation. One, one friend of ours talks about the Shalom Ark <clears throat> that moves from creation to the new creation. <clears throat> Ooh, I get so the Shalom Ark, this idea that our stories fit into this great, great, beautiful ark of God's work. Where is history going? <laughs> history is going, well, Edward Hicks would say, it's going towards the peaceable kingdom. In this painting, as you look off into the distance, you know, you don't see the detail way out there. He's drawing our eyes out there. What is it going to be? But then in the front, he has given us, on the right-hand side, the vision from Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he will judge the poor. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Where history is going, there. A place of reconciliation. It's it's wonderful to uh, see how Hicks has drawn this these animals. I'm not so sure about that lion. He looks a little um, uncertain, you know. The king of the jungle. Mm, not so sure. Here. Where's my next meal coming from? Where's the lid to this? But let's look at the picture some more here. Look over here. Over here, what we find is him indicating, Hicks, this Quaker who painted this a hundred times, painting that. No, we're not there yet. But what we have seen is that there are times when Quakers sit sit down together with First Nation people and a relative justice is done. Something is happening which indicates that the future can be a future of reconciliation. And it's something that Hicks saw. The Algonquin people were talking with Quakers Mm -hmm. in, in Pennsylvania and they were working out things together. So he said there is hope. There is something happening that is a, is a taste of the future. And so what he's doing, I think, is suggesting that all our congregations are meant to be anticipations of the peaceable kingdom. Think of our people. 
Our people with all their brokenness, yet our people being healed by God, being reconciled by God, giving the peace to each other and meaning it. This happening week by week, that is a foretaste of God's kingdom. But you'll notice there's that gap between the two sections of the painting. We're not there yet. There's this gap. Always when he paints this, all hundred times he painted it, always the same shape of the painting with that gap in the middle, but looking out into the future. And so we're called then to be people of this big story, people who live into this five-act drama, people who live with this kind of hope, people... Haroas puts it like this. The church is unique not because of its superior morality or piety or aesthetic sensibilities. The church is unique because it's the only community on earth that gathers around the true story. And so we are a people who are being restored. So often people are concerned about me. What will happen when I die? You know, it's just it's focused on the individual. But And, of course, people are often drawn to what's called spirituality. And uh, they experience God in nature or they are attracted to cyclical schemes, cycles of nature. Um, But God's mission is teleological. It is aiming in a direction. God is at work in nature, certainly. But it's this bigger vision that we have. And God, God, in this understanding, has a mission. And God's mission is to reconcile all things in Christ. So we'll look at this handout, the one with the pictures on, on the top, the classic mission. We showed this last evening, so we'll talk about it briefly. And we want this schematic to indicate our deep respect and involvement in classic mission and our sense that the mission of God adds new insights that are very important for all of us. So on the left-hand column we have what we're calling classic mission, in which the central text is go, make disciples of all nations and baptizing them. And the church is the sender or a parachurch organization. And the territory is out there, far from home, going away from home, out into some non-Christian place. And the personnel are specialists. They are missionaries (laughs) who are sent, who are trained, who are blessed, who leave home and who go abroad. And the goal is to bring salvation, to save individuals, to set up and build the church with institutions for charitable and educational work is often the shape that that has taken. And this kind of mission goes on. We were participants in it. We are supporters of mission financially and in prayer. And we know its importance both as we in the north send missionaries to the south and as people in the south send missionaries to the north where churches are flourishing as they make their contribution. So today we see classic mission from everywhere to everywhere uh, among Christians. So that is, that is a paradigm that has been and continues, and there are strengths in it, which we've listed below there. But worship and mission, we believe, is primarily calling us into mission which moves in God's grace and God's determination toward the conclusion of God's mission, which is reconciliation of all things and all people in so, Christ. So on the right-hand column, the mission of God, Missio Dei, has these texts as, as foundational. Jesus' words, I can only do what I see the Father doing. The Father is constantly active. 
As the Father sent me, says Jesus, so I am sending you. He's sending us all into mission as God sent him. In the text that we heard just a minute ago, the Colossians 1.20, in which God is reconciling all things in Christ, all things. Or in which the wolf and the lamb are reconciled. This picture. This is the, these are central texts of the mission of God. So and the sender is who? The sender is God in all areas. God is the one who sends. God does not coerce. God does not force or induce. Uh, but God sends. That's the word, the word this missio comes from. It has to do with God who sends. And the territories are everywhere. The territory is here. Canada is a mission land. Indiana, where we come from, is a mm -hmm. mission land. The mission land is at our doorstep. It's at our place of work where we meet our friends. Mm -hmm. And the every, personnel? Every Christian. There is no non-baptized Christian no, no baptized Christian who is not involved in the mission of God. Our baptism is our commission into God's mission. And the whole church as a whole is an instrument of God's mission. And the aim is to reconcile all things to, in Christ with God, humans, and creation. And so we are especially interested in how our worship of God, the God of this mission, glorifies God and then forms us to be participants in God's mission, into which we are baptized. So we're calling this mission, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Not just classic mission, but the mission of God in which all Christians are drawn into it, into their lives. Just one word before coffee. <laughs> you think we can make it? <laughs> and this is that we are seeing story as central. And we are seeing this huge story as being the framework for our lives that gives us meaning, that gives us hope, that gives us energy. And we think it is very important to tell this story with fidelity because this is an odd story. We're surrounded by many stories in our culture. But this one, the one we live by, the one we live in, is a strange, odd story. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an upside-down mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. There was, um, there was once a Jewish boy who went to Torah, to school, to uh, learn about his faith. So his, he came home one day, and his father said to him, Oh, yes, and so what did they teach you today at school, Sonny? They taught us about the Exodus. Oh, good, the Exodus. And what did they say about the Exodus? Well, they said that the Israelites got some tanks and rocket launchers, and they headed for the border, and they nuked the Egyptians, they, and they, then... They, they, they told you that? No, they didn't. Well... But if they told you, told me what they, what I, you would believe, nobody would believe it. Oh. <laughs> if you told me mm -hmm. what they said, mm -hmm. I, no one would believe it. It's an upside-down story. It's an upside-down uh, yeah. story. Yeah. God actually intervening, and what do the people do? They let their hands fall. Mm -hmm. So it's an upside-down story. It's a story of the exalting of the weak, the humbling of the proud. It's a story that is in a line. It is, it is not a cyclical story. It is going somewhere. And that is unusual, too. It's a story that assumes that God is present and active in the story. It assumes that God is real. It assumes that God is actually there doing surprising things. 
But one of the most interesting things about the story we tell is that it makes claims upon us, upon the ones who tell the story. It changes us as we tell that story and are drawn into it. Wow, we're changed, we're grabbed, we're formed by that story. Those who tell it assume the character of the story. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the story is one in, about forgiveness and how we receive forgiveness. We Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's a story of love in which we receive love, but we are changed by that. It's a story in which he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. The story is one in which we are invited to enter into it and to be changed by it. Mm -hmm. This is called the motive clause. The motive clause runs through the whole scriptures. God is like this. The God we worship is like this. As Jesus says, I forgave you. Should mm -hmm. you not also forgive other people? The Lord's Prayer. He's right central forgive to Forgive us it. our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The way God treats us becomes the means by which we treat other people. Mm -hmm. The story makes a claim upon us, and we can only tell the story with integrity if we allow our lives to be transformed by it. That's the motive clause. And so what we then do into, in this world is enter into the story, experience God at work, and become participants in the continuation of the story. It's coffee time, and so we will work at how this happens after the break. <laughs>